You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models in analysis. Our aim is for this podcast to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode alongside me is our chairman and chief investment officer. In my life, I've most commonly referred to him as dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for doing this with me. You're very welcome, Cole. We're glad everyone has joined us for this episode. We're going to conversate over and discuss one of the toughest and darkest hours of the American economy. Amity Schles is joining us to talk about her book, The Forgotten Man. Amity has published three other books, including her 2013 book, Coolidge, and her most recent title, The Great Society, A New History. Ms. Schles chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She also chairs the Hayek Prize, a prize for free market books given by the Manhattan Institute. She is also a presidential scholar at the King's College in New York. Before we introduce Amity, is there anything, Bill, that you're looking forward to in our discussion? Just about all of it, Cole. It's one of the books I've enjoyed the most over the last 10 to 15 years. I agree. It's a fantastic book. Uh, are we ready to get rolling? We are. Awesome. Amity, this book was very near and dear to our hearts coming out of the 2008-2009 saga that we all had to live and witness and experience here in the United States. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Amity, tell us, what prompted you to write the book, The Forgotten Man? Some of it had to do with the stock market. You recall before 2000, the market, and into 2000, the market went up very high. And it seemed as if it could, it might never stop going up. Uh, and that seemed a good time to write about America's great low, the Great Depression of the 1930s. I was on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. I moved over to the Financial Times where I was a senior columnist. And it just felt too uh, historyless and too fluffy um, around that time, which is to say 2000. So that that's when I uh, committed to write the book, The Forgotten Man, The History of the Great Depression in 2000. So you sound like you're a little bit of a contrarian then, Amity, is what I think you're telling us because um, obviously, you know, you were you must have been in New York then and therefore, you know, you looked around and you didn't see much other than people agreeing. Is that fair to say? That is so. But that's sort of the way it works, isn't it? Um, also, uh, there's a second reason for this. Um, the Great Depression was a terrible period. It's the Rosetta Stone for economics friends it's supposed to explain everything 
for better or for worse. And the explanations that were on offer didn't satisfy me. So uh, they had to do more with the present than with the events. That is, there was a kind of contest going on between conservative gold standard fans and uh, people who follow Austrian schools and then Milton Friedman and the monetarists, and they were fighting with each other to justify their current theories and not going back, it seemed to me, enough to the actual period of the 30s. So depending who you meet, you would hear it was all monetary, which is actually a sort of amplification or even misrepresentation of Milton Friedman. But anyway, he had the monet he placed the monetary emphasis in his book with Anna Schwartz, and then subsequently, or it was all a malinvestment um, or inflation. You get that from various people associated um, with the Austrian school. And uh, or um, let's see, the government didn't spend enough that would be more progressive types. Uh, and it, it, the interpretations of this downturn, when um, we had double-digit unemployment for a decade, sometimes closer to 20%, a, a period to the 1930s when the stock market did not come back, um, it, you know, the stock market hit its high at the end of the 20s in 1929 at 381. And that, that nominal number we didn't get back to until several decades later, which is a little creepy, um, mm -hmm. especially when you take into account that we did have inflation in the later period. So 1953 1953 is a little late. What if you told people now, well, it's 19, it's 2022, and it will be not 10 years, uh, more than that. <laughs> 2032, so 29, 39, 49, 20, 42, uh, and then some until the market gets back to its nominal current level. So that was, it was very important to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, one thing that motivates us all is rebellion. Um, it, it, there's stupid rebellion, which is just impulse, and there's constructive rebellion. Uh, I, I uh, believe in constructive rebellion, and my constructive rebellion is uh, most people are so intimidated by this period and all the investment that various economic schools have made in interpreting it that they don't dare address it. So I thought, well, let me try and see if I can figure out for myself what happened in the 1930s and then try and convey that in the book. I don't know if I'll be able to do it or do it well, but let me give it a go. Sure. So to, to kind of follow on that, um, do you look at this as a history book or do you really look at this as an economic history book? Because like you said, depending on what school people come from, they, they have kind of a more narrow view of this. Well, one of the problems with the economics trade, which is my favorite trade, is, it, you know, we, we look at numbers in isolation. Um, well, they had very strong productivity gains in the 1930s. It was a, right. Okay, what did that mean? If it didn't mean unemployment of less than 1 in 10, it's not that interesting, except for maybe, um, and uh, the economist Al Alexander Field does does make this point very well, in, in the sense that we were, were ready to handle the investment and buildup of World War II. We had smart people in smart jobs innovating every day, even in the 1930s. We don't uh, acknowledge that, but we did, particularly uh, professionals, chemists, scientists, engineers, but economics generally doesn't uh, always take into, um, into consideration the whole person or even um, a basic fact from economics, such as heavy unemployment. So I consider it an economic history, 
Um, I also consider it a history, The Forgotten Man. Um, the, the When it was published, this particular book, and we can go back to what the book says, but when it was published, one of the gratifying, it was attacked viciously. Okay, The Forgotten Man book, that was a, a little rough. But um, one of the gratifying things that occurred is a number of economists wrote and said, essentially, you've given a story to my data points. And that's what books should do. They should give a story, uh, hopefully a true story, to data points. Uh, so I was gratified by that. You're, you're talking to a couple of history majors here, so uh, or history and uh, economics majors here. Yeah, we're, we're junkies, so we, we're, we're junkies. You're preaching so, to the choir. So, well, there, uh, were, there was this study by a professor named Wapples, or Waples, W-H-A-P-L-E-S, while back where he interviewed economic historians about the Great Depression and did the government make it better or worse? Forgive me if I'm paraphrasing imprecisely, Professor, because I, I haven't seen it in a while, but something like that. Um, and the economic historians who had degrees in econ were more skeptical of the New Deal performance in the 1930s than the history majors who put a little econ in their history. There was a breakdown. So, so it does uh, matter what trade you're in or what subdivision of the trade of writing history, whether you have a PhD in econ versus a PhD in, in history, how you um, rate w the performance of the government in the 30s. I found that very interesting. You're, you're telling us that you wrote the book because of the wild things that were going on in 99. One of the things that triggered us to, to uh, interview you was the crazy things that were going on in 2021. So let's start with chapter three in the book. You called it the accident. Uh, first, walk us through the the October crash in in 29 and all the and some of the crazy things that led up to that. Well, the market in the U.S. was high. So look at it was 381. That's a high point, and that it it had I think doubled. Forgive me if I don't have the chart in front of me. It it it, it was it, people were kind of used to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was the number people used at that time. That's the value in the Dow data set. It goes far back, right? It goes back to the 1890s. So the Dow um, was 100, and then all of a sudden, now in just a few years, it was 381. All right, that's a factor. Um, there were international factors. So. They all knew the market was due for a crash. There were international factors. There were factors relating to interest rates. We set interest rates low in the United States, um, partly to help Europe because Europe owed us money. Um, England might want to set its interest rates higher, keep its gold, and, and we were wanted to be lower, so we didn't draw money away from England, all that was going on. And in uh, in the mind of the Treasury at that time, remember at that time, they did have a different Fed law. And the Treasury was more influential officially by statute at the Fed. We changed Fed law in the 1930s, um, led by Mariner Eccles, the Fed chairman of the 1930s. But anyway, Andrew Mellon was the Treasury secretary. He was also the financial supremo mind in the United States in the 20s. And when he woke up in the morning, he said to himself, quite logically, how can I help Europe so it doesn't simply default on all its debt from World War I and it continues to pay? Maybe I can help it reschedule its debt. Maybe uh, me having lower interest rates is part of that. Maybe I need strong growth. 
you know, all these factors were there. Um, but as uh, the listeners will know, there was a boom in Florida real estate in the 20s. So there were signs of a bubble. There was not a multi-decade bubble, though. Um, there was just a bubble. Uh, it, it, there was not a bubble so big it necessitated 10 years of Great Depression by any means. Uh, the market went down. Um, I described that in, in the book. It recovered somewhat uh, over the course of the winter. So if you go look up, say, the writing of, there's a, an in- interest rate expert named Silla, S-Y-L-L-A. He has a really nice piece about the crash and how many percentage points the market rose over the winter after the 29 fall over the winter of 30 and into the spring. It seemed as though the market would come back you know, or at least make up what it had lost. We didn't have a feel in 29 and 30 that we were about to plunge into 10 years of double-digit unemployment. Yeah, and I think, I think John Kenneth Galbraith in his book, In the Great Crash, he talks about that people got kind of pretty bullish, the market rose, and to your point, it just created more decimation to follow in, in, in the following couple of years. Even Remember, the did- stock market didn't matter that much in those days compared to now. Not as many people held stocks. People, um, the, the country was a, a different country. So w- what I, I, my analysis is that we overrate the importance of the crash altogether and put a kind of inexorability into the narrative that simply was not there at the time. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's one of the wonders of our industry is the, the divorce from the real economy versus the uh, unreal. So let's go in and so, so the market crashed uh, it rebounded, and then it got darker and darker after that. You explain in your book what was going on with the banks in Salt Lake City in 1931. Uh, yeah, remember, there t- were t- international factors, too, because there was a depression all over the world. Which, um, But, but we, you had, um, you know, when we had the 2008 crisis, big banks had trouble. Think of Lehman Brothers, right? And other big banks got rescued. Um, big money center institutions. The the crash of 29, 30, 31, 32 was very different. Little banks failed. There's a famous cartoon of a worker, and I believe he's talking to a squirrel because he's sitting on the park bench, and, and the squirrel says, why didn't you save for winter? Again, I'm paraphrasing. And the man says, I did. But when I went to the bank, I didn't get my money back is the next line that's not written. And what happened in, and I used to teach this at NYU Stern, if you look at the bank failures, 29, 30, 31, 32, there are a lot of bank failures, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of banks. But they're not, by and large, big money center banks. What they are is little banks in towns where farmers had their savings. Why is that? Uh, partly because we had a, a general tightening. What happened um, that you're describing is the people made their own money, their own script, uh, which they called the valor because they're just what the banks were dry. Um, but but the reason for that um, was uh, – Partly, that was the thing that happened in the U.S. all the time in those days because banks were very local. They weren't part of a big Fed network. They couldn't go across state lines. They were little banks like um, what we what we used to call unit banking was the rule, um, as in It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. That is, the, the town had one crop. 
it had one or two rich men, and there was no deposit insurance. So the crop failed, the bank failed, people didn't get their money. There was a lot of that. And if you build a chart um, of bank failures um, in this period, you get an interesting result. Between December 29 and March 33, the share of U.S. banks in number that failed was 39%. Oh my goodness, almost four in 10 banks failed. That is, we went down from 24,000-odd banks to 15,000-odd banks in the United States. That's terrifying, right? But only 2.7% of deposit value was lost. What does that tell us? Little banks failed. Nowadays, we have big institutions fail. Um, and, And that was because of the fragile nature of the unit banking system. So if you wanted to do a counterfactual, you could say, well, given that experience, which was treated as American banking is failing, it wasn't. It was, what you could have done in a common sense way is say, we will have unit banking reform, which we eventually did. Uh, eventually, um, you know, a bank in Illinois um, could somehow borrow from another bank across the state line or even have a branch over there. But that took many decades. So, Amity, I want to come back to your, your Valar conversation because, I, you know, here we are. It's 2022. Um, and here we are with all these currencies kind of running afloat over the Internet through cryptos and Bitcoin, etc. How, how do you look at the, the Valar that, that took place in the fallout from um, 1929 entering the Great Depression in, in, in your book versus what we're seeing you know, around us today? Well, at that point, people wanted dollars, but they couldn't get them. We had a deflation. We had a shrinkage in the money supply. Um, you can use, we had no credit. You, could, you, you can use whatever language you want to use to explain that. Um, but at this point now, dollars are available. What cryptocurrencies are, first of all, setting aside whether they hold value or not, they are an expression of distrust in the dollar. People want an alternate. Then people didn't not in, in the thirties. People didn't necessarily want an alternate. They wanted a medium of exchange. They would have been glad to have dollars. That doesn't mean these two are unrelated. Um, it's, it, it, when people make up new monies, usually it's a symptom of a problem in our monetary system. That's that's interesting. I would think of it as a problem of security and and uh, protection of your privacy. Uh, oh, not just that, but not just that. I mean, a lot of what happens with cryptocurrency, you can pretend to yourself that you're not known because it's so special and different, but it's online, right? If you <laughs> if you have money under the mattress, nobody knows it's there. So the security is only part of the story when people use alternate currencies or buy gold and put it in their closet. They're trying to hedge against the dollar, so or Amity, make uh, make yeah hedge against the dollar, make better returns than they would with the dollar. Yeah, just so you know, we're we're not fans of of that kind of thing. We're we're kind of in the Charlie Munger camp when it comes to Bitcoin. So l- let me let me uh, have a little bit of fun here. Uh, w- w- we we believe that Occupy Wall Street started in 1934. Uh, what was the year of prosecution like? In uh, uh, in the Forgotten Man, one thing I talk about is when governments 
get angry because they're failing through their policy, what do they do? Sometimes they smile on or permit class warfare. And when the economy didn't come all the way back um, uh, in the early Roosevelt administration, well, it was it was fun for the Roosevelt administration to distract the voter with scapegoating. Um, in that book, in Forgotten Man, the scapegoat I focus on early was a man who's who's been canceled ever since because I didn't grow up knowing his name, and he's from Chicago. Um, he was a hero of Chicago in the day. He was canceled by the Roosevelt administration, even before that a bit, I think by the Hoover administration, but the real definitive canceling was Roosevelt, named Sam Insull, I-N-S-U-L-L. And he was um, a, a, a terribly great innovator in the utilities sector. He basically created networks for power and laid wires long distances in a period, um, he did this before the 30s, but that's how he got his start, in a period when people still believed every family needed a generator. Um, every, every family needed its own power station. You know, it, it, the whole idea of the modern grid just didn't exist, and Insel helped to create that in Chicago. He also took over other utilities. He built out and wired out, thereby making it possible to live in far suburbs because he brought electricity to those suburbs by wire. He also built the Opera House in Chicago, what we call the Civic Opera now. And uh, he didn't really like New York. New York didn't lend him money. So he made that Opera House face away from New York like a chair. It does not face east. Um, so there was this titanic figure, Sam Insel in Chicago, and he had employees buy shares in his company. Okay, we, uh, maybe he pushed employees to buy shares, and he had a lot of other Chicagoans. And when his company ran out of money, utilities is a capital-intensive industry and doesn't always do well in hard times, particularly uh, when it's, you know, the, it, it, he was quite levered. Um, when he failed and people lost their money with their investment in him, including his workers, he was vilified for that and treated as a criminal. Um, and he he just went through trial after trial. There's a cartoon of the period of Sam Insel um, going sort of from hoop going from from trapeze to trapeze. He makes it off one trapeze through one trial or one legal proceeding onto another. And he eventually died in Europe. He ran away to Europe and died there um, with no, with just a little bit of money in his pocket. In Paris, uh, he, he collapsed in the metro, in the subway. Um, very sad story because he was an important innovator. Uh, that happened to a number of people. We blamed capitalism for the failure of the economy to return in full strength. And later, basically through the 30s, a, a, a much more famous prosecution was that of Andrew Mellon. And that was scapegoating almost on a Chinese level, you know, one thinks of Mao. Andrew Mellon was the Treasury Secretary, he was the father of the prosperity of the 1920s. Who better to blame, lampoon, and destroy than Mellon? So in the 30s, um, he was prosecuted by the Roosevelt administration, in specific um, by Henry Morgenthau, his successor at Treasury, a far less able financier. So uh, there's a lot of psychology in there if you want to look for it. Henry Morgenthau was basically a well-to-do boy who was interested in agriculture who ended up Treasury Secretary because he was friendly with the Roosevelts. And Morgenthau's insecurity was expressed in his torture of Andy Mellon. 
Um, and aiding him, he had a man who became an esteemed Supreme Court justice, the man who prosecuted the Nuremberg trials, Robert Jackson, who said, uh, working for the Justice Department or the government, you know, I'm so glad we're going to be prosecuting this case, uh, the case of Andy Mellon. And they made up a lot of um, stories about Mellon, but the truth that he cheated on his taxes and so on. And it was quite bitter, and it wrecked his old age. Well, that's one of the things about old age. It's not always given to us in our old age to be appreciated for what we did or achieve the country. And Mellon himself did pass away in 1937 before these prosecutions were all over. He was such a strong personality. I, I don't think he ever uh, gave up um, in some suicidal way, but it, it, the... the, the um, nonstop persecution by the Roosevelt administration of its Republican opponent, this former Treasury Secretary, certainly darkened his final years in a way he d did not deserve. We, uh, we humorously look uh, f forward to Occupy Palo Alto. Let's jump to what you mentioned about uh, agriculture and and. and, and Really, the book does, I think, a fantastic job of explaining uh, the movement in adult employment from 1900 of, of very, very high levels directly and indirectly attached to agriculture to 1970 when, you know, the, uh, the America was feeding the world with 2% of the adult uh, employment. Yeah, walk us through that, and, and how much do you think that that— uh, natural progression, uh, which was expediated in the Great Depression, uh, is a key. Well, farming is hard, particularly before high-tech farming. Tractor comes along, that's a lot better. Electricity comes along or doesn't. It was just coming along in the 30s. Um, farming pre-electricity must have been really tough. Um, but the productivity gains were coming through the tractor, and well, maybe we didn't need as many people farming to get as much volume of the commodities as we as we had before. It was just a stunning change in productivity with the arrival of these great machines and of of John Deere and of electricity. So people were naturally going to move out of the farms anyway because we needed fewer workers to get the same result, as you note. In addition, weird things happened with farming prices. We subsidized farming rather heavily at the end of World War One, and the prices rose a lot. Then we deflated, tried to wring the inflation out of the economy, and ceased to subsidize quite in the same way. Um, and farming prices, commodity prices went down. So it said the farmers suffered a depression before the depression in the 1920s, and there's some truth to that. How awful was it? Pretty awful. Was there a logical conclusion? Yes, some people uh, left the farms and went to the cities and found jobs, and that was not all bad. Um, so, so you had these transitions going on in the period. Roosevelt liked President Roosevelt liked farming a lot. Every every president, you you could sort of do a Rorschach test on presidents um, and their attitude to farming. I think Coolidge thought of farming, Calvin Coolidge in the 20s, as an exercise in federalism or trying to prove uh, the value that Tocqueville's America still existed. I farm and good fences make good neighbors. I respect my neighbors and my man sends me 
you know, um, a cord of wood from time to time or honey or maple syrup. It, 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 Coolidge is very funny. He saw farming as a legal construct uh, or a Christian construct. He wasn't particularly economic when he came to his own farming background in the town he came from where farming existed, where his family farmed and where it was mighty tough. Vermont, it's not a place you want to farm. They say they farm rocks in Vermont. Hoover saw farming as um, an economic experiment. He wanted to standardize and exploit the economy of scale, and he ran a farm, Herbert Hoover, with his son. Roosevelt saw farming, uh, I don't know how I'd characterize it, but he was really interested in it, uh, really interested in grain prices as a kind of exciting thing to do. He worried about farmers and he liked to change farming. So when he built the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a 1930s New Deal institution, there was no Tennessee Valley Authority with hydropower before the 1930s. He thought, I'm going to improve the quality of life of an American region, the region around the Mississippi and Tennessee, you know, the, the rivers down there. And I'm going to change everything, including I'm going to supply fertilizer and teach the men to use fertilizer. I'm going to um, I'm going to use hydropower to electrify the farms, and I'm going to be sure the children read the right books. I mean, everything. It was a sort of uh, social construct for Roosevelt, and uh, that was done for the farmer. I remember in writing this book, I looked up. The TVA um, is in some places and not others in the South, this big hydropower um, center and uh, operation. And I looked it up, and there's one book that suggests, and we think of it as an economic benefit. We think of it as the place that electrified the South. Nobody else, the South was tired of living in the dark. That was the line. And the TVA came along and lit it up, and Roosevelt said, this will take taste awfully sweet a large subsidy project with hydropower to the people of the Tennessee Valley. But what this book, and I'm blanking on the author, I can look it up, but this book suggested was the places where the TVA went, poverty abided more than expected, and the places where the TVA, the big government hand, the big flood of money, didn't go actually ended up faring better. It's a question whether being subsidized like crazy was good for the South in that way, and whether actually private companies would have ended up electrifying the South on their own. We can't run that that experiment. It's too late. But there were important utility companies who thought they were electrifying the South. One was called Commonwealth and Southern, where Wendell Wilkie, who later went into politics, worked. And Wilkie said, look, I'm electrifying the South. It's very expensive, as, as we mentioned before. Utilities are capital intensive, and we, but we could do it without government. We are, you know, the North was already electrified. That's why we built this company here, Commonwealth and Southern, to have a deep company with deep pockets to do this. So there was a terrible clash relating to farms in the 30s between the Roosevelt administration, New Deal on the one hand, and private sector on the other um, about how you improve the life on the farms and also Listen, of course whether it matters again because many people were leaving you uh you blessed us a lot in 08 and 09 because we took some of the frameworks that you use in your book uh dealing with the 20 to 25 percent unemployment to to try to create a floor for how bad the financial crisis in 08 09 could be well, what's what's the 
what was the difference between the residential real estate debacle of 0406 and the fallout from it? And you've hinted at it, it was a large institution thing and the crash of 29 and the circumstances back then. Well, the reason there was high unemployment in the beginning of the 30s was a financial collapse. The reason there was enduring unemployment in the 30s, which matters a whole lot more. I mean, the reason the Depression was great, and we don't just say the Depression or the Forgotten Depression, is people were unemployed for 10 years, was government intervention. Um, I I don't... Why is there uh, unemployment when there is now? I mean, government intervention, but it's not so abiding. What specifically happened in the 30s? Actually, you can decide whether this matters and applies to now. I'm not sure. What specifically happened in the 30s was the government drove the wage up. Why, in some kind of proto-Keynesian way, they were saying, give people more money and then they will spend more. Send them a stimulus or give them a higher wage. Unions were very powerful in the 30s, unlike now. And the unions demanded high wages, and they got even higher wages than they demanded from the New Deal, from Roosevelt through the Wagner Act of 1935. Why? Because there was deflation. And when you have deflation, your money is worth more than you thought it would be. So if you say you want to raise and you get it, well, you got a bit more of a raise uh, than you knew. And um, so if uh, there's there's an economist named Leo Hanyan who charts the 30s, and the perverse thing about the 30s is the wages were above trend for the whole century. Why were wages above trend in a period when people were out of work? Because the government pushed companies to pay a lot, and the companies were afraid of the government. Why were the companies afraid of the government? Because the Roosevelt administration had control of Congress. It's not like now where everybody was divided. So you want to imagine a terrific force. Franklin Roosevelt won almost every state when in his reelection campaign of 1936. You couldn't say no to him. He ruled um, ordering employers to pay more than they could afford. The Depression was still on. They did, but guess what? They, they hired or rehired fewer people. So that's what happened in the 30s, Um, and that's the way I view it. The economy, all things being equal, will tend to recover when it stumbles. That um, incredible upward pressure on labor price didn't allow the economy to recover as it otherwise might have done in the 30s. And again, I do recommend O'Hanion. Um, and it was a real tragedy because there's nothing, what is a government for uh, to create circumstances where you might find employment if you've lost your job? And in that essential task, the New Deal failed. There, there seems to be a cyclical rotation between socialist attitudes around the federal government, as you're kind of talking about from a, from a FDR perspective, attempting to solve our economic problems uh, instead of more laissez-faire policies. Um, You've talked about FDR. Can you teach our listeners about the political environment of the country in the Hoover years? Sure. Hoover was president after Coolidge and before Roosevelt. And Coolidge was the free market president, and the market went up. Hoover comes in um, in his first year, 29, the market goes down. He gets blamed, and uh, people make fun of him. The shacks of the homeless are called Hoovervilles to mock him because he was considered himself a prosperity guy and had always been associated with prosperity. The politician um, he's closest to, I would say, in the modern 
spectrum would be Romney, Mitt Romney, or even Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, who served um, in the Nixon administration and was governor in Michigan. Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, that is can-do kind of consultant guy, smarter than anyone else in the room, really good heart, a little bit too bossy, not that much of a consulter. And someone who Hoover came up with elaborate compromise plans that he worked out with himself, which is different from going in to meet Congress and you have your plan and Congress has its plan and then you compromise. They were sort of Herbert's compromises with Herbert, which meant they were a little goofy. Um, And for whatever reason, um, Hoover wasn't as friendly to markets as Coolidge, didn't trust them as much. He didn't think they were modern. There was a huge premium on being modern in in Hoover's mind. Uh, So he berated markets when the market crashed. He permitted an enormous tax hike. Okay, uh, that wasn't very good. Um, There was even a tax on checks in the Hoover period. That's bizarre given they were concerned about um, the velocity of money. So they put, he, there was sand thrown in the works of the, of the monetary system through this check tax. Um, and he also signed an icky tariff, Smoot-Hawley, uh, and mainly he, he kind of took a hostile attitude towards business and was very much a control freak. So you have someone who's, who's a Republican nominally free market with a lot of good ideas, a better understanding than many other presidents of international finance who still managed to gum things up. And at the time, the unemployment was so dire, there was a sense that maybe capitalism is broken in the U.S. Um, Over time, I I think people who write that generally are exaggerating it. Um, America was not about to go communist. We learn in school that that Roosevelt, in particular, saved us from a revolution. I, um, the evidence that I saw when I went back to work on Forgotten Man did not suggest America was about to go communist. I think that's exaggerated in order to make uh, the New Deal look more um, heroic um, and uh, than it actually was, and and to um, to deter questioning of the New Deal. If you questioned someone who's the hero who saved the country, well, you yourself are suspect. So anyway, um, but if you're getting at, did we get more interest in socialism? Of course, because there was a dire situation. uh, Amity, what was the logical outcome of the massive government intervention in the 30s as it pertains to the depth and length of the 1930s Depression? The, the government made the Depression great. It could have been a depression. It became the Great Depression, and that was because of government policy. And one factor we haven't discussed that's very important is when you have government very strong, think about the government in COVID. We are in an emergency, a pandemic. The government has a lot of license or claims a lot of license. And if the government is erratic, that's terrifying to business. You don't know if the capital gains rate is going to be 13% or 70%. That was the mood after World War I, where there was that question. They didn't know whether the government was going to prosecute utilities uh, under antitrust, um, pass a law that broke up utilities um, on antitrust principles. That did happen, the Public Utilities Holding Company Act of 1935. 
um, team up with utilities and hire them and be their best friend or team up with manufacturers. Sometimes the New Deal prosecuted manufacturers and sometimes particularly as World War II grew near, it teamed up with and funded and loved industry because Roosevelt um, and the country wanted to be able to fund our arsenal of democracy in order to support Europe and then eventually ourselves enter World War II. So that's awful wide range of attitude for a business person to have to contemplate and guess at, right? So you have a chilling effect. And Roosevelt's theory was um, bold, persistent experimentation, which sounds nice, and he, he was a lovable man, but bold, persistent experimentation as a logo, theme, meme is absolutely terrifying to whoever's subject to that experimentation, which would be markets. And what would you what would you say just as a economist and historian yourself about what we've done uh, with the massive stimulus stimulus we've used to get through the pandemic? Aren't there going to be some uh, natural consequences of what we've done? Well, the value of the dollar will go down, whatever you call it. You call it inflation. It gets competition, maybe from another currency. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin. It could be something else. Um, you also have a lot of um, malinvestment, money flowing places where it's not really needed, not flowing to places where we could get a lot of benefit if it would flow there. So, so I'm concerned about that. And what happened, um, you know, after the Great Contraction, 2008, is some of us, because of the stimuli then, thought inflation would come. The data don't suggest, some of the data don't suggest we're right. Um, people who warned of inflation from 2008 on were roundly mocked. Um, and so you see them kind of being quiet now because they don't want to be mocked again. Well, eventually there'll be inflation. There'll be high interest rates, um, no question, because we've created more money than the economy can absorb. We agree with you. And, and uh, you know, it could even be tangible things like oil that make the dollar look poor uh, is how we think about it. So to your point... I want to, you know, people were mocked coming off of 08, 09 and the idea of inflation. We, we remember um, Julian Robertson. We remember uh, other people like that kind of screaming inflation. Some economists did. Um, now we sit today Jimmy where Rogers. very few people want to make that argument. Now, Larry Summers has made that argument. Um, and there's been a few others like that. So thinking back to, you know, during the federal government domination showing up in the 30s, who, who was speaking out? Teach our listeners who was who speaking out against that at that time. Well, one of the things I discovered in going back to research the period where, where there were all these, these minds, these voices speaking, and nobody remembers them because they're not recorded in the textbooks. One was Insel, the man I mentioned, the utilities king in Chicago. Another was a guy named Alfred Lee Loomis, and I hope you read Tuxedo Park in your group because he was an innovator and a financier. Um, he actually helped to structure um, big utilities companies so that utilities could raise the money to electrify the rest of the country. But when he saw what was going on in the New Deal and in the 30s, he said, count me out, and went and lived a secret life at his house in Tuxedo Park, New York, and tinkered with science. And eventually, when World War II uh, approached, again, he got involved again. Um, he was a very innovative 
man. He uh, designed improved guns, basically. He worked on radar. Um, and he was a, a quirky scientist and funder of Science Mind. So he ran his own private think tank at Tuxedo Park. Uh, he knew what was going on. He didn't say it. Basically, I think, looking at him, if you read Tuxedo Park and hear the story of Loomis, he basically said, I don't ever want to testify before Congress. I want zero chance I have to testify in court and justify my investment decisions. Therefore, I'm going to retire from business in the 30s. Count me out. There's big count me out story. Um, another person I discovered in reviewing the 30s didn't know a single thing about him was named Benjamin Anderson. He wasn't a marginal figure. He was chief economist of Chase Bank, which even then was a big bank. And uh, Benjamin Anderson would write a newsletter every week, just as you must, saying something like, we don't know whether it's the overly high wages or the support of the administration for kooky antitrust policy, but one of the two is really depressing the markets. So Benjamin Anderson, Anderson understood all this. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything he said, but he understood the cost of the intervention week and week by week chronicled it. And I never met an American who knew about Benjamin Anderson. He, 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 before he died, his, his work was published in a book called Economics and the Public Welfare. But I did meet some foreigners, and I remember talking to some economists who worked in Russia at the Kremlin for Putin in the early years. And they said, oh, Anderson, Anderson, we read Anderson, a book from the 1940s, about the 1930s. They understood better overseas what Anderson was saying, the cost of government intervention in markets, the chilling effect political power has upon markets. These foreigners understood Anderson better than Americans. It, it amazed me. So I bought lots of copies of Economics and the Public Welfare, and I quote Benjamin Anderson all the time. He put what happened in the Great Depression very simply. He said, all these failures are due um, by by the decision of the government, again, I'm paraphrasing, to play God. And even more perverse, when playing God didn't work out for the government in the 1930s, it just played God even harder. It tried even bigger um, intrusions. And that about sums it up. Uh, I'm a big fan of Thomas Sowell, and he wrote a book that explained the philosophy of those on the left and those uh, on the right concerning uh, economic policies. Wasn't the New Deal a classic case of well-meaning folks in power attempting to solve everyone's problems with tax taxpayer money? Well, it was definitely a top-down problem. It's what's sometimes called the knowledge problem with Hayek. It, nobody has enough knowledge to run the economy, and particularly not politicians who have an insulation like a rubber tire around them from reality. They only have to be elected every four years or every two years, right? And they, so they're not like businesses which get a signal every morning from the market. How am I doing? Am I selling my product? Is it, are people, do people want my product? How's my credit? None of that is for, uh, none of that real-time experience is there minute to minute for politicians. They operate in election cycles. And that that's what I think is important, and Sol is, is right about that. It's not that politicians are evil. It's just that they lack information. So to assume 
they can make grand decisions is sometimes an error by them. It's a fallacy to think they know more than we do. So to your point about governments having imperfect information, um, I think there's no better example that than the country of China, where obviously there's tons of people, it's a very large economy, and yet there's a lot of the data is poorly understood, it's not understood at all, or just outright made up. Um, do you think the growth and success of a country like China, when comparing it against, say, the history of the United States of America, um, I remember 10 years ago, people would talk about, oh, if we could only manage our people like China does, it'd be so much easier to grow this economy. Do, do you think because of looking at that over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, that's given more confidence in governments, whether it be in, in, in Europe or in the United States, to kind of carry more I think more people control? think the China model sh suggests that our capitalism isn't the only capitalism, and you hear that every day. Charlie Munger says Charlie that all Munger the time. Says that, yeah. Right. I'm not sure. I, um, I, maybe I'm not listening enough because I don't want to hear it. I don't agree. Uh, so our, the, our capitalism is great capitalism. Capitalism that's a bunch of rent seekers is less great capitalism insofar as China is actually a free market and a wonderful deep market. That's wonderful. That's interesting. And it's like us insofar as it's rent seekers and politicians. Well, that's that's concerning. So, um, so I, I don't, you know, have strong views either. Uh, I'm not a China bull or a, a China bear, but, um, but we are not like China, and our property rights are very, very important. Agreed. Uh, you wrote there was yet a second contest among Ro Roosevelt's men. It was between those who sought the cooperation of larger businesses and those who wanted to attack them. Explain this to our listeners. Well, it, it, there were a number of theories in the New Deal. One is let's work with business, more almost, uh, you know, government, pri public-private cooperation, public-private partnership, you have that today, right? The mayor and the big business all get together and then, right? And then there were people who just want to annihilate the businesses in order to buy time with these these show trials from the electorate. Uh, so, and and they rotated these philosophies. There are multiple New Deals. I mean, scholars of the New Deal at universities say New Deal one, New Deal two, New Deal one. Um, I'm making it overly simple, but New Deal one was work with business. Um, think of. Um, the National Recovery Administration, which was created to manage the industrial sector, if you can believe it, very early in the New Deal. That was a cooperative syndicalist effort that was overturned by the high court. Then there was uh, the attack moment, the year of prosecutions that we described would be an example. You know, they, they rotated through philosophies to keep political power, which humans do. Uh, right, left, or center. So when one philosophy didn't work, it was try another. And sometimes antitrust was the emphasis, and sometimes it wasn't. Amity Chapter 8 is called The Chicken Versus the Eagle. Talk about 23% unemployment, the Dow at 93, and teach us about the chicken butchers. Well, that's an example of what we're talking about, which is the little man or woman at the bottom seeing more than the big power. Uh, there were chicken butchers in Brooklyn called the Schecters. The name Schecter actually means butcher in, in their language. So that gives you an idea of family pride in the business. Uh, chicken butchers, it's a dirty business. 
it's it's not um, attractive the way I don't know fashion is or something. Um, and it requires a lot of work. Uh, in their case, this particular set of chicken butchers brothers, the Schechter brothers of Brooklyn, um, they were religious, so it was a kind of ethnic, wholesale poultry shop, a live poultry shop, which meant that the chickens were alive and they, they slaughtered the chickens, a little slaughterhouse for, before the customer. Why? Back in those days, there were no antibiotics. Refrigeration was not the rule. And one of the best ways for the millennium before we got the refrigerator and penicillin to be sure your chicken was fresh or your beef was fresh was to see the animals slaughtered. So the customers would come and see it. they say, that's a healthy-looking hen. I'll take that one, consumer choice. <laughs> Watch it be that. Instead of saying, I'll take a latte with soy, they'd say, I'll take that hen. Uh, be slaughtered, they'd go off their hen, and they'd be reasonably sure their children wouldn't get sick from it. Remember, before antibiotics, before refrigeration, or f uh, even the supermarket, that was the way they operated. They were aggressed um, by the government for breaking a bunch of rules that were written um, under the National Recovery Administration rule, rule book. Um, in fact, by some of their political opponents, because the NRA codes per industry were had input um, from the sector they governed, very Italian, um, uh, you know, think of Mussolini's Italy. Uh, and often the, the men, uh, and they were mostly men, who had the say were those who had big companies, such as supermarket chains, which were beginning. Well, supermarket chains love the idea of writing rules so they put little live chicken butchers out of business, right? They want the supermarket to rule and to prevail. And the little uh, chicken people, these Schecters, um, were indicted for breaking a bunch of rules written by the government and larger businesses. Basically, think of a industry department combined with the health department. So they all the rules they broke, uh, they had people work on the wrong day, they paid too little, they didn't let customers pick their chicken, and there was this um, questionable theory that, that consumer choice slows economic recovery, tell that to Starbucks, you know. <laughs> consumer choice slows, uh, it's sort of a cartoonist uh, worship of the assembly line and Frederick Taylor. All these were the rules that were applied to these little chicken butchers, and they were indicted on many counts, and they lost in lower court. And they said, what? And what's interesting about that case is they began to fight back. They barely spoke English. They were the absolute classic underdog or under chicken. Uh, and it, they were the chicken, and what they were fighting was the blue eagle, the symbol of the National Recovery Administration. Press gets wind of it, so it's the chicken versus the eagle, chicken v. eagle. A wonderful case you can tell with poultry and metaphors throughout, and I often do that when I'm speaking to business groups. I just tell them the story of the chicken. And these chicken butchers, the Schecters or their friends in court, actually articulated the problem um, a philosophical problem, a, a, a government problem w with that situation. They said, I may not be an economist, I may not have a PhD, I barely speak English, but I, said one of their friends, I'm an economizer. I have experience in business, and I know that, well, I, I can't pay too much when I don't have too much revenue. I know customers like to pick chickens. I know that following, in their case, Jewish dietary law is important to my customers. And if I don't follow 
that rule that, well, then I will lose my custom. I will lose my community because they won't shop here. They like kosher chickens from butchered in a certain specific way that we all learned a millennium before in Europe. So, so it was the wisdom of the street and the street business versus an economic theory that proved wrong or a set of theories. The, the romance with the economy of scale faded. And these little chicken butchers, uh, the Schechters, prevailed themselves in Supreme Court out of jurisprudential reasons. Uh, you can't regulate the economy like that uh, from atop, from the White House, particularly not by executive order. There wasn't enough input from Congress. The, the Schechters weren't really involved in interstate commerce, so the federal government shouldn't have been involved at all. The chickens, as they put it, rested in Brooklyn. Uh, they bought chickens in Brooklyn most of the time, and they sold them in Brooklyn. They were not interstate as their principal business. Uh, so, um, but there were there was a huge element in um, the comments of the Supreme Court vis-a-vis -vis the Schechter case and these chicken butchers being prosecuted. That was just common sense. Supreme Court said, "Wait a minute! Why can't you pick your chicken? Why can't your customer pick his chicken? Wh what is that?" And the Supreme Court actually laughed at the absurdity of the intrusion of the National Recovery Administration rules for this particular um, live poultry. Uh, section of the U.S. economy. And when the Supreme Court justices laughed, the Schecters knew they had won. Supreme Court sided uh, unanimously against the Roosevelt and the National Recovery Administration for the Schecters. And this case, which is also known as the sick chicken case, because it was contended that they sold a chick, sick chicken, very um, big contention for people who are in the food and health business, um, anyway, they, the little Schecters won, the big government lost, and everyone, um, those who weren't involved laughed like crazy, such as the British press, at the, at the very humor of the story. But the court decision also put a check on the New Deal, because after that, Roosevelt was more, more cautious about writing such broad laws. He did try to rig the Supreme Court. Um, clearly, particularly out of irritation that his centerpiece of his program, the NRA, centerpiece of the New Deal, had been overturned by a bunch of justices, but he didn't succeed with that. Um, and you do kind of get the feeling there's a, a reality check from the Schechter case. So I found it very amusing, and what was particularly useful to me in terms of research is I had the luck to be in NYU Law Library and actually looked up the case uh, and got to read all the lower court testimony, which we often don't do with these um, high and mighty Supreme Court cases. And if you look on the internet, you'll see there was a kind of um, icky a attack on my contentions um, by a professor at Harvard Law. And I thought, wow, why would he do that 10 years after this book came out? Um, it, and as it happened, he was wrong, the Harvard Law professor. Um, and why do I know he's wrong? Because I have the lower court testimony. Um, so people really resent um, revisionist history or unusual history. And for some reason, this Schechter case draws people, and they fight about it to this day. That's a great story. And as you were talking about that, Amity, uh, part of that Supreme Court packing was William O. Douglas, who was— you know, thrown onto the court uh, as part of FDR coming out of the SEC. 
And uh, William O. Douglas hails from Bill and my alma mater. So kind of near and dear uh, as you talked about that. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about or anything in, in our discussion that you feel has to be mentioned that comes out of your book? Nope, I think you've got the book. I would mention that The Great Society is the continuation of that book. I hope you read it. It's a little closer. Um, but some of us have lived through The Great Society, but it's really this sequel. Um, and many of the stories in Great Society are, in effect, continuations of the stories in Forgotten Men, particularly the story of the romance with socialism, younger people in love with socialism. That's great to hear because we've been talking about that recently, uh, you know, in, in kind of LBJ's Great Society. So I very much look forward to jumping into that book. And, and we'd love to have you back on to talk about that um, at a later date. Well, as you hinted, cyclical, right? The, the motto of the book Great Society is nothing is new. It's just forgotten. Nothing is new. It's just forgotten. We're, we're casualties to our own success. We don't remember. Failure is so far back we don't remember it. Um, and I talk quite a bit about education and um, even have a section in Hanoi. So or, so um, I hope you'll have a look at that. Well, I've really enjoyed our time with you today, Amity, as, as I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, I think the one idea I've taken away from our discussion is as I hop around states right now and I see a patchwork of rules, um, that's not new to our country at times. Uh, Bill, no, it's what, not what new, and it's not always bad. <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree. I, I, what I think about is how crushing the mandates from state governments have been and how little they did to stop the Omicron, as an example of, of uh, uh, you know, how would you like to be in a state that's been very restrictive, and then you wake up a year, year and a half into the pandemic, and you've got as bad a case of, of the virus as anybody else does. Yep. Well, thank you. It sounds like you have a very thoughtful company, and I look forward to meeting you. Well, we loved having you on, Amity. Um, I'm going to need to get a copy of your newest book, like we said, The Great Society, um, so we can have you back on. Um, I want to thank you. I want to thank Bill for hosting this with me today. Um, Amity's book, The Forgotten Man, is the best book for understanding the economy and political circumstances, as well as responses around the Great Depression. Um, all, all our listeners should go out and pick up a copy today. Um, for our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. Uh, thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank well, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.